What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk again to Roshan Salah. You're most welcome, sir. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome, Sampo. Nice to be here again. Nice to have you back, sir. Um, Roshan has been a journalist. I was asking how long you've been a journalist. It's for 25 years, actually. Yes, uh, giving away my age. Extraordinary, as an embryo, extraordinary career. Uh, currently, he's the editor-in-chief of the uh, increasingly uh, important uh, news website, Five Pillars. Uh, which you can follow on, on Twitter, and there's a website. Uh, I do strongly urge you to uh, subscribe or follow them for uh, important news. And during his career, uh, he's reported from over 25 countries. Uh, highlights include the Iraq War and occupation, uh, the Pakistan earthquake in 2006, the Lebanon-Israel War, uh, the Iran nuclear crisis, the Egyptian revolution, the Libyan revolution, the World Cup, uh, the Olympics, and much more. Um, and I so say you can follow him. You have your own personal uh, Twitter account, which I'll link to as well uh, below. And he's the author of the book titled Confessions of a Muslim Journalist, My Life in the Mainstream and Alternative Media. Interesting title. Um, you've been incredibly busy and actually very grateful that you've, you've managed to find time to uh, come on this platform because uh, we're living uh, in an historic moment, in uh, yes. a very serious uh, moment in history at the moment. Uh, and um, I obviously follow you on social media. And I noticed just recently you were reporting from the International Court of Justice uh, mm. at The Hague, um, where obviously South Africa uh, has brought a, a, a case against uh, Israel for genocide uh, against the Palestinians. And I was very struck that you, you were there. You were there with the crowds and the people as it was going on. What, what was that like just being there at that incredibly important moment? Well, I think the best journalism, obviously, Paul, is the journalism that's done from the ground. Uh, if you're just kind of sitting in your armchair at home and mm. just kind of tweeting and observing, it's not real journalism. Real journalism is is done on the ground where you experience things. That was a very historic moment because I think it's the first time that Israel has been put on trial in such a public way. And after mm. all, this court, the International Court of Justice, is actually the UN's top court, you know? Mm. So literally it's one of the top courts in the world. And there you have, you know, the South African delegation who were treated like heroes, mm. you know, um, you know, kind of rocking up and literally making the case for genocide. Mm. Uh, you know, saying what we all think and what we all know mm. that uh, the Israeli regime is guilty of genocidal practices, war crimes, massacres, slaughters, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But just to see that in such a setting at the UN's top court, to see mm. Israel being put on the you know, the the on trial like this, I think, was a very satisfying and historic 
experience because it doesn't happen very often or perhaps has no. never happened before. No, I, I don't know. I, I mean, just to be slightly cynical, I mean, the significance is always very true what you're saying. But say, uh, I, I mean, I, I suspect what do I know, but I suspect that the uh, the court will decide that uh, Israel is guilty of genocide. The evidence is so overwhelming. But then, you know, you've got the, the UN Security Council, uh, USA is a permanent member of that. Can't they just veto any, any action? Mm. Can't ultimately this, this be an exercise in futility in that the US does have that power of veto over everything at the end of the day? Is, is that really what, is that the, the plausible end game? do you think? Well, there's two scenarios here. One is that obviously they find uh, against Israel. And I think, um, I mean, you know, it's an open and shut case, Paul. I mean, this yeah. literally is the first genocide in modern history that's been live tweeted. We're seeing the images every single day. Um, the evidence is overwhelming. It's probably the most recorded and documented genocide in human history. I would actually say more than the, the Holocaust in World War II, because that was a historical event. And we had to rely on kind of second party, third party evidence. And um, I mean, obviously, I believe in the Holocaust. I believe it happened. But we didn't have the instant images that are coming through every day like like we have from Gaza. So I think it really is an open and shut case. Uh, I think if the court finds for Israel, um, I think it will really impinge. It'll, it'll impugn the, the, the kind of credibility of the court. And this is the UN's top court. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, it will be the, the, the biggest travesty in, of justice perhaps, you know, in modern history. And I think it will, you know, people will obviously lose faith in international institutions, international mm -hmm. courts, it'd be a mockery of justice. So I even think the US wouldn't like to see that happen. Of course, this 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 court does not have the power to enforce its, yeah. uh, you know, diktat. Uh, it doesn't have an army, it doesn't have, you know, mm -hmm. a militia that can just stop Israel from doing what it's doing. But I think the moral and political pressure that will be, you know, kind of put on Israel with a guilty verdict will probably be overwhelming. And I think we already know that because of the, you know, electoral timetable in the US, Joe Biden doesn't want this war to last too mm. much longer uh, mm. because it's hurting his chances of getting reelected. So I think he, even America might be quite pleased to see a guilty verdict because that means that Israel will have, you know, a time limit to end this war, uh, perhaps a few more weeks. So you don't think you don't think America would veto then any uh, UN Security Council resolution to enforce this? Because you say it has no power of enforcement in the court. I don't think it'll. I don't think it'll get to that point. To be honest, I think that. Um, I, th I think Israel. Sorry, America's already putting pressure on Israel to right. have some kind of time limit to the end. I mean, this war is destroying the Israeli economy and it's destroying the world economy yeah. to a certain extent with the the, the Houthis blocking yeah. the, the Red Sea uh, and world trade. So I think, um, you know, Biden is very low in the polls. Trump is going to absolutely kill it when it comes to the election. So I think the we have to keep our, you know, there's always a, a military clock and a political clock. Uh, and they work in tandem to a certain extent. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And sometimes they're in conflict with each other. The Israelis mm. would like as much time as possible. But ultimately, the only country in the world that can stop Israel from doing this is the U.S. We've already seen some differences uh, in policy between the U.S. And the, and, and the Israel, the Israelis. The Israelis are much more gung-ho. They would like to see this war widen. Um, you know, the U.S. would like to see it contained. So I personally think a lot of discussions are happening behind the scenes between mm. the U.S. and the Israelis. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised um, for the U.S., whatever they're saying, to be secretly pleased about a guilty verdict. But yeah. I think the court is, the last thing I would say about this, uh, Paul, is the court is quite politicized, you know? Yeah, um, I've heard that. I've heard that, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so obviously the judges all come from certain nation states. And well, these which which states, are those? So which, what do you say certain nations? Which ones do you mean? All around the world. So there's an American judge, there's uh, a British judge, a Russian judge, Chinese, there's a Lebanese judge, there's a Moroccan judge. So all over the world, these, these judges are appointed, but they're all appointed by their nation states. So right. I think they're quite unlikely to go against the political will of their nation states. So judging it logically, I mean, I've counted the number of judges there, and I think there's a majority for Israel. Um, it's quite right. close. It's a bit of a knife edge. But if one or two judges, you know, you know, judge it on the merits of the case rather than, you know, uh, following the political diktats of their nation state, then mm -hmm. I think we'll get a guilty verdict. But if they're going to just literally be political employees and behave like that, then I think the verdict will go with Israel, unfortunately. See, I, did, I didn't realize that, that these were, these were political appointees. And, and that's, a, that's a very important point, actually. Uh, and, and that's quite depressing as well. Um, gosh. Um, now, did you actually, were, you able, were, were people able to go into the court? Were you able to gain access or was it completely? No, very few. I mean, I, I must admit, I, it was the last decision, minute decision for me to go because another reporter was meant to go but couldn't. So I just went to the last minute and therefore I didn't have accreditation to go inside the court. Uh, but there were very few places anyway. There was only kind of maybe about 10 media crews inside the court. Um, and then the public gallery was very limited as well. So yeah. we watched everything that was going on on big screens outside. Yeah. Uh, there was a pro-Palestine demonstration, quite large. Mm -hmm. I would say perhaps up to about a thousand people, maybe a little bit less. And there was an Israeli demonstration of a similar size because there are a lot of pro-Israelis, particularly in Holland. Yeah. Uh, and lots of people came from abroad as well, from different areas of Europe, some from the Middle East as well. So it was a massive event, and obviously from even from South Africa, uh, people yeah. were coming from all over the place. But Holland itself is a bit of a right-wing country as well. No wonder. Can you believe it? That that man. No, no wonder Gert Wilders is doing so well in the polls. So Israel is quite popular in in the Netherlands itself. So oh, I would say the. I mean the 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 Palestinian demonstrations and the Israeli demonstrations in the UK. We've seen the Palestinian demonstrations. You know, ten yeah. times bigger or a hundred times bigger. But in in Holland, there's more parity. That's, I didn't know that. It's extraordinary. I, I noticed you were chasing after an Israeli uh, uh, camera crew. There's a guy yes. that you interviewed. Uh, and uh, you were giving him a little bit of a hard time, I thought. But what, what were you up to there? I mean, not Yeah, well, you know, um, we all have different styles. So I've, I've had a bit of criticism for that from uh, friends of mine. But I think most Muslims were happy to see me do it. You know, I've got a bit of a volatile personality, Paul. I know, I know that when we've met each other, you, you'll think that butter won't melt in my mouth. But... 
occasionally I can get a bit annoyed and angry. And I just felt that, um, yeah, I mean, obviously we're all feeling a little bit powerless and helpless. Mm-hmm. We can't stop this war. We're seeing a genocide unfold before our eyes uh, and we can do very little about it. So I felt personally that the least I could do was to put a representative of the Israeli media under a little bit of pressure to make him feel a little bit uncomfortable. So that was my race on, yep. that was my kind of reason for doing it. I um, I only had about 20 seconds. I was told by another journalist that that's Israeli TV. So I went straight up to him and I yeah. did what I did. I Googled him afterwards because I thought maybe I'm being a little bit unfair here. I don't know who he is. So I Googled him afterwards. I found his Twitter feed and he is somebody who supports the Israeli regime. He is someone who supports Israel's actions in Gaza. So I think he was a legitimate target. <laughs> I only had 20 seconds to say what I said, so it was all the top yeah. of my head. And yeah. my goal was just literally to make him feel uncomfortable, a little bit of accountability for the fact that he is supporting what is a genocide, what is in the fact yeah. a genocide. That's why I did it. Yeah, and you, you, you could, if you follow if you follow Roshan on on Twitter, uh, you, you'll see all this uh, pretty much after it happens or whilst it happens sometimes. So uh, do do follow him. Um, I, I sort of change uh, tack slightly to more UK-based news, really. And, and again, if you if following you, you expressed strong views actually about the UK government's decision to proscribe uh, Hizbut Tahrir, mm. uh, a Muslim political party in the UK, as a terrorist organisation. It's quite. A, Quite a shocking development but why is this decision so important to muslims in general do you think well paul hispateria are a non-violent peaceful islamic political party mm. uh, founded in palestine after the second world war their big idea is khilafah to bring back the islamic khilafah or caliphates um to unite the muslim world under the banner of islam under the banner of sharia law um They've always had a political kind of modus operandi. They've always been peaceful. They 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 don't have large numbers in the UK, uh, mm. but their influence probably um, outshines their actual numbers because they're quite influential in the media on social media in particular, mm-hmm. and they believe in kind of appearing on the media and and expressing their opinions on the media and getting more influence through that. Yeah. Um, I know their members and their leader personally. These are middle-class professional, very intelligent men. Uh, wouldn't say boo to a goose. Have never been involved in in any act of violence ever. And I think if you if you're going to be on the terrorism list with Al Qaeda and ISIS, then mm-hmm. at least you have to have bombs and weapons and plans to kill people and terrorism. None of this applies to Hizbut Tahrir. And I just think, Paul, that this is a really black day for British Islam because I don't think Hizbut Tahrir are the real target here. I think it's Muslim activism. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, they've banned them on the basis of ideas rather than actions. Um, mm-hmm. They're not a terrorist organization. Yes, they have controversial opinions in a British context. Yes, they criticize British foreign policy. Yes, they rub certain people in the establishment up the wrong way. But they're not a terrorist organization. They don't have any plans to kill anybody. And I just think that that's where you should draw the line in Britain. When you when you when you have an organisation that actually wants to hurt people, that wants to kill people and target people, civilians, in a violent way, then of course I think everyone will understand that mm. that's unacceptable. But Hezbollah Tahrir does not fall in that category, and I just think this is a this is a really black day for Muslims. I think more Muslims should be speaking up about it because it's Hezbollah Tahrir today and it's us tomorrow. Because I think the real target yeah. here is British Islam and British British Muslim activism. 
because they're not banned yet, but I understand there's a vote in Parliament tomorrow and then uh, the likely prescription would happen on, on the following day, Friday, uh, the 19th, I think, when it will be illegal to give them any support uh, whatsoever. Uh, it, a criminal offence, prison, an imprisonable offence. Um, and I don't know what social media would do, the, the, the corporations, in terms of taking down their social media presence on Twitter and YouTube, et cetera, which is quite extensive, as you say. But I'm interested in uh, moving, you, you talked about the, the wider implications here. So you think this is not just like a, a tightly focused uh, prescription of a political party and it's particularly, there's this particular label. You think this is part of a wider, a broader sweep that will, you know, criminalize or, or demonize uh pro-Palestinian or political Muslim act activist sentiment in general? You think this is part of a bigger move? Yeah, I think it's meant to scare us, Paul. I think, yeah. um, and I think it's working to a certain extent. I think, I think the authorities are genuinely concerned by the effectiveness of pro-Palestine activism over the last three months, especially in the UK, mm. uh, especially on social media, because we're kind of excluded from mainstream media to a large extent. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, and obviously that is having an effect on the streets. You've seen these demonstrations week after week in London and elsewhere, hundreds of thousands of people. So I think the authorities don't like that. We know very well that, you know, Suella Braverman didn't like it when she was Home Secretary. And, and generally the Tory party don't like it, Labour don't like it. And I think it's just kind of um, a warning shot. You know, let's get the, the, the low-hanging fruit, Hizbut Tahrir in this case, and send a warning message out to, to Muslims in general that um, you need to start shutting up and you need to... There's a line you can't cross. You know, you're going a little bit too far in your criticism of Israel, in your criticism of Zionism, in your criticism of the British authorities and their support for this genocide. Uh, just one name came to mind when you were saying all that about Jeremy Corbyn, the, the former leader of the Labour Party. He was very outspoken and many would say very brave in his support for Palestine and the Palestinians in, in their uh, struggle for uh, against occupation and look what happened to him you know the, the the there was an attempt a successful attempt to take him down and he was much maligned for being this that and the other which was quite extraordinary considering his political positions against racism and so on um so that this isn't just like uh, uh, although this has had a renewed uh emphasis on perhaps suppressing dissent or demonizing it, the former home secretary calling them hate marches you know the palestinian uh marches are extraordinary uh but it's not completely new, is it? This goes back a couple of years, I think, to attempt to really manage. It's almost as if Britain is changing from a more traditional, more liberal, tolerant, yeah. you know, a country where political refugees were, you know, Karl Marx came here in the 19th century, for, you know, I mean, as a refugee, and, you know, wrote Mein Kampf here, not Mein Das Kapital, <laughs> get, get the right guy, uh, not, not the other guy. Um and I mentioned that because we seem now to be moving towards a more kind of top-down European model, like yes. the French and German model, where dissent is managed and, and suppressed rather than the kind of more live and let live, at least as far as the Marxists go, not the other one I mentioned by mistake. But um, so it, it, that, are we moving more towards that kind of more um, rigid yeah. authoritarian European model, do you think? I think we've spoken about this before. I think we both are very familiar with France and we both live there, we both speak French, and we, we both know, you know, what the concept of laïcité, uh, secularism, means in France. And I think we're moving towards that model. I think Britain generally has had this model of um, uh, multiculturalism with diversity. Um, yeah. And um, that's the general model that's been followed over the years, where Muslims have had more space to breathe here and, and, and organize and, um, and, you know, have uh, freedom of speech, whereas in France, 
it's kind of um, uniformity rather than multiculturalism. Everyone yeah. has to be mentioned and you can't really express your diversity, especially in public spaces. So yeah. I think we're moving more towards that model. I think, I think, I think generally what's happened here, it's actually really fascinating, Paul. Um, if you give me a minute to explain, I think um, British Muslims are unique in the world in terms of diaspora communities. Um, the traditional model of any diaspora community, no matter whether it's Muslim or Hindu or whatever, is assimilation over a series of genera generations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, integration, then assimilation. And they lose their religion, they lose their languages. Mm -hmm. um, and this has happened to a certain extent in America, where American Muslims have become quite liberal and they've jettisoned some core Islamic values, normative Islamic values. Um, I think the opposite has happened to a large extent in Britain, whereas we have, uh, you know, the, 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 the children of the immigrants of the 1950s and 60s are actually more religious than their parents to a certain extent. I interviewed a leading academic at King's College about this very point. Yeah. Uh, Professor uh, Linda Woodhead. Um, and she's made exactly the point you just made, uh, based on academic research. Absolutely. Yes, oh, that's great. So it's not just an anecdotal oh, thing. No, no, no. ET, I interviewed her about this. It's on the census. She, she I said think exactly I saw that bit, actually. I think I saw a clip on your Twitter. Yeah, about yeah. yeah so it's, it's, it's unique in the world that we have actually held on to the rope of Islam uh, in such a tight way. Now, I think the British authorities thought we would um, integrate and then assimilate over generations, and mm. they can see this has failed. And obviously, it's annoying a lot of people that we are still holding so tightly onto the rope of Islam, not just as a religion that we do in our spare time, but as a way of life. You know, so we think economically Islamically, we think uh, politically Islamically, and not just in terms of rituals. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a clash is happening now. And I think I think the the multi from the 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 perspective of the authorities and the you know the the lawmakers in this country, they can see that we're not integrating like they wanted us to integrate or not assimilating uh, like the Hindu community have, like the Jewish community yeah. have. Yeah. We're not jettisoning our religious values. And therefore, an inevitable clash is, is happening right now as we speak and will play itself out over the next few years where Muslims will be pushed further and further to abandon their normative Islamic concepts, whether that's belief in the Khilafah, uh, Sharia law, you know, LGBT, uh, you know, believing homosexuality is a sin uh, uh, and other things like that, we'll be pressured more and more to do that. And if we don't, I think the pressure on us will get greater and greater. It's already, you know, getting to the stage where they're banning our organizations, putting pressure on our mosques, restricting our freedom of speech. And I think uh, that is only going to intensify, unfortunately, in the years to come. And there's a great deal of self-censorship. I, I know some imams at uh, certain leading mosques in London, I won't say which ones, who do self-censor on certain issues, LGBT, for example, not because they're cowards, but because they're afraid a mob will descend on their mosque or they'll be prosecuted simply for holding uh, views, which are actually shared by the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, most evangelicals. But uh, uh, when Muslims uh, hold them, they, they seem to uh, upset people for some reason. Um, but just to give an example uh, of what you're saying about this clash, uh, you, you've been reporting even today, I think, uh, there's a school in northwest London uh, where the headmistress is actually very famous for being mm. the strictest teacher in Britain or something. She has this kind of reputation, but mm -hmm. she's actually an appointee. Uh, she, she has a very prestigious background with, as a government appointee. But anyway, she, she, she at her school, allegedly, because I, I don't personally know the facts, I'm not a journalist or anything, allegedly they have banned... Uh, uh, pupils in the school from praying at yes. the at the set times. But I, I want to stress, reading the detail here, that the, the detail matters, that the pupils who had been 
stop from praying because they wanted to pray because Islam is very popular, obviously, um, were praying outside of classroom times. They weren't interrupting the school schedule. They weren't in any way upsetting class times or the education. It was in the playground during playtime and so on. So in other words, th th they were operating within their own time, even though it was in the school day. But even that has been banned. Uh, apparently, allegedly, by the school. And I, I, I read the report in the Telegraph today, which was outraged that these, you know, there's an undertone of outrage that these Muslim pupils should uh, want to pray during the day. And it was a barely concealed contempt and, and a lot of support for the very strict right-wing teacher, which she seems mm. to be. But with the you report, it was much more, I think, balanced and sympathetic that, that here was, uh, you know, people, people just wanted to pray you know, and because it was um, uh, a physical ritualized prayer, salah, shall we say, rather than just praying quietly in a corner where you purely internally, uh, that seems to have triggered certain uh, authorities in the school. But th this this clash, which is ongoing, I think it's in the court, it's in the high court or some court, yes. uh, which you've reported on. And this is one of the reasons why people, I think, should follow uh, your, uh, you know, your, your news website, Five Pillars, because it really does give a much more balanced uh, view on what's going on with Muslims rather than the slanted more telegraph view I think which which is quite barely concealed temp, contempt towards Muslims and if you look you read the comments from the public the mm. under all of them are hostile uh, send them back uh, if they don't like it here go and live in Afghanistan it's extraordinary Islamophobic really big and just sheer nasty comments which is yeah. page after page of them and I'm looking in vain. I do I do try and comment on the Telegraph uh, comments sometimes, but you know I get attacked then. But hey, um, but so thank you for highlighting that. I mean, do you have any more information about that? What 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 stage are we reaching? Cool. I mean, I mean, uh, I don't think we should say too much about it simply because the court case is ongoing. Uh, I know that the the pupil who was complaining about, I mean, a, pa a prayer ban was put in place. Uh, I don't think it's a case of alleged a prayer ban was put in place uh, last year by the head teacher and the governing body. Uh, it's a question of was that justified or not, and the pupil uh, gave uh, her evidence yesterday, saying that she felt discriminated against and her right to, you know, express her religion, uh, which I think they uh, pupils can do in school as well. Uh, the, the school has to provide for that. Um, you know, that that was curtailed, and the school I think gave its evidence today, so we will be reporting on that as well. Right. The school is very litigious. Uh, mm -hmm. They tried to get this case heard in private, believe it or not. Yes. Uh, they have tried. They even five pillars. They sent us a legal letter uh, asking us to take down a article that we put up about six months ago, or a bit more than six months ago. So I think we should let the judges decide on the merits of the case. So there actually, attempts to silence you, a journalist, reporting on this very important case in London of a school allegedly stopping pupils praying in a very yes, the, way. The, the school Gosh. tried to get the judge to hear the. Uh, case in private because they said there was a threat to the school, a threat of violence to the school. The judge threw that out and said, nope, this is going to be aired in public. Amazing. So in, that, that's why we're talking about it, because it has been yes. now uh, in the public domain, which is how I know about it, because you, you've now finally been writing about it. So it, it, we'll hear about the outcome of this, presumably, in the, in the coming days, will we? Uh, it'll probably be in the coming weeks. So the, the wheels of justice turn slowly, but the, the, the hearing, I think, ended today, if I'm not mistaken. And it usually takes a couple of weeks for a judgment to come through.
Right. Gosh, there's two judgments now that, that we're waiting for. What well, one is obviously in The Hague, a uh, very important one, and this one as well, which matters to Muslims in the, in the UK. Gosh. Um, you, you mentioned uh, earlier on, we were going to come back to it, I think, about, about the mainstream media, mainstream mm. journalism. Uh, what, what did you want to say about that? And, and your do you have a relationship with the mainstream media or, is it, or you just operate parallel lives, if you like? Yeah, your... not much anymore. I mean, obviously, I used to work with the mainstream and have contacts in there. And obviously, I maintain those informal contacts uh, behind the scenes. And obviously, we often go to cover the same events. So we have a chat. But I don't get invited on the mainstream media anymore uh, or hardly ever. Uh, when we started Five Pillars so all those years ago, uh, nearly 10 years ago now, or more than 10 years ago, we used to get invited on for several years, quite a lot. And that was when we were a much smaller uh, website and, and platform. Uh, we used to be on the BBC Sky News channel for all the time, myself and, and Dilly Hussain. Mainly Dilly, because he had more time to go on than I did. Um, and um, But we, start, we stopped getting invited on, I would say, about four or five years ago. And it kind of coincided when the extremism czar, Sarah Khan, who doesn't like us, uh, she uh, kind of got into office, and then suddenly we stopped getting invited, and lots of very prominent British Muslims like Moazen Beg and many others uh, who used to be invited all the time, they stopped getting invited. So now the only people that really get, the only Muslims that really get into the mainstream media are those without a constituency. You know, We don't even know who they are. Sometimes they're terrible performers. They don't know what they're talking about, mm -hmm. uh, and they just get destroyed by whoever they're debating. Or sometimes they're so kind of pro-West and pro-kind of, they're very conservative and even anti-Muslim that, you know, it, they may as well get on Douglas Murray or something like that. So, yeah, the, the mainstream media doesn't really platform uh, genuine Muslim voices anymore. But to be fair, are, are you not against going on shows like Piers Morgan show? So is it oh, like yeah, on Piers Morgan, yeah. So obviously... You're not wanting to go on certain shows as well as... No, no, I think we, we, we do believe on going on the mainstream media because I think Ultimately, we live in a majority non-Muslim country, and um, we know that you know Five Pillars is mainly mainly read and watched by Muslims. So we don't always want to be kind of talking in an echo chamber. Um, we do believe on going in mainstream media as long as it's you know it's fair. We we get a fair crack of the whip. You know, uh, we're not outnumbered three to one mm -hmm. by you know three against, uh, uh, yeah. and we're the only the, we're the only Muslims there. As long as our, our comments, usually if it's live, we'll go on as well because we don't want to be edited and our comments to be taken out of context. Mm. And I was on Newsnight about a year ago, and oh, that was uh, the last time I was on mainstream media. And there was a big gap between that appearance and my previous appearance on the BBC. Now, um, yeah, so we will go on, but there are certain platforms like Piers Morgan, uh, which unfortunately Muslims have been going on. I've always been against going on Piers Morgan simply because I think um, it's not a uh, an, an arena for fair debates. Like we've got nothing against mm -hmm. having a you know kind of a fair um, you know even challenging debates and our views being challenged. Uh, but what Piers Morgan is trying to do is he's trying to get people prosecuted. Mm -hmm. You know, and obviously he played a big role in the HT ban as well because I think if if mm -hmm. Hizbut hadn't gone on Piers Morgan, the focus yeah. wouldn't have been on them so much. You know, mm -hmm. so the government's made a a decision to ban an organization, I think, based on a few social media clips on Piers Morgan. So that's the reason why I, I felt that we shouldn't go on Piers Morgan. Mm -hmm. Dilly, my 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 colleague, yes. took the point of view, he did yeah. go on. Yeah. I didn't exercise any veto. Uh, perhaps I should have, but I didn't. <laughs> and, um, and maybe that's weak leadership on my part. But, uh, I mean, Dilly did quite well. Um, you know, I would, I would mark his appearance like a score draw with Piers Morgan. But I think other 
Muslims did far worse and mm. were kind of, yeah, hung, drawn and quartered. quartered. Yeah, no, it was particularly painful uh, to watch. And there are actually, having discussed this with some of the participants on that show, Muslim, uh, there are strong arguments for and against, actually. And, and there's some very eloquent re and profound reasons to go on as well as not to go on so i find myself swinging uh depending on who i'm talking to uh in terms of you know what my view is really so yeah but, yeah, but, but, but I mean, ht though being demonized through uh yes. Piers Morgan is very true and i've noticed uh Piers morgan has been tweeting uh crowing is probably a better word on twitter about uh, uh dr abdul wahid about, about his uh what's happening with ht in a very nasty unpleasant way you know uh, yeah. and uh, that really soured it you know this guy just has no manners he's just uh no, no, he's a murdoch hack he's a murdoch henchman ultimately and if you look at the way that i mean he pretends to be neutral but look at the way how he treats his israeli guests and his, his zionist guests compared to the way he disrespects his muslim guests cuts them off after a few seconds doesn't allow them to expand their thoughts or finish their sentences is always on the offensive whereas he gives his israeli guests uh and his zionist guests the time to speak etc but just look paul i mean just look at I mean, the, the only reason why we're even considering going on piers morgan is because we can't get anywhere else you know the bbc won't take us sky won't take us channel 4 won't take us so we're relegated to literally going on this platform where we're harassed why, why, why won't i mean I, I, you, you pointed to some kind of uh hypothetical maybe real uh blacklist almost seem to be implying that because um you, really, you think that's what that is the case and you're just not yes. going to be right okay i believe there's a blacklist and uh i believe there is a memo that has gone out from uh i don't know maybe intelligence agencies or government departments saying these people are not acceptable um uh, therefore, you should not invite them on their show. I'm not saying it's an order, but, you know, ultimately people that work for the BBC and these channels, you know, they often they've gone to school or they're, they're mixed in the same circles as people in government or intelligence agencies. So it's it's a revolving door, quite frankly. And uh, I'm sure they've exerted some kind of influence. Yeah, that would make sense if there's been this consistent non-inviting of people. Yes, absolutely. You were invited. Uh, suggest suggest there is something going on, clearly, uh, without yeah. being paranoid. There's some kind of... Conspiracy might be the wrong word that triggers the wrong we, idea. We only get invited on. Uh, the only exceptions in the last uh, five years or so is um, when there's a topic which kind of suits them, which makes us look really bad. So right. they feel like this is like fertile ground where mm. they've got us over a barrel. Let's get them on. <laughs> and obviously with the intention of demonizing them. And yeah. usually we turn down those invitations. Yeah, no, that, that kind of uh, makes sense. So what... Talk to me about the future then, given the, these these informal restrictions and more informal restrictions, Hizbut Tahrir, that are coming into force. I mean, are, are there any Muslim voices in the mainstream media at all now? Or is it simply are, are, are Muslims now relegated to the alternative media? Yeah. And is that necessarily a bad thing? Because I think, I think uh, if I'm not mistaken, even Elon Musk says he, he doesn't read the legacy media anymore. He, he's on Twitter or X, you know. It is not the, re the the real interesting news that young people particularly consume on these on these alternative platforms like yourself, like X, like TikTok, and so on. So, does it really matter so much in terms of you, you still have a very big constituency, even, yeah, even if it's not Middle England so much? Paul, well, well, I'm not begging to go on the mainstream media. Uh, right. It doesn't bother me at all. Okay. I just think that um, it's that they still have a lot of power, and. Um, you know, if, if the BBC, for example, claims to 
represent all constituencies and communities of this country, then I think it's only fair that they give Muslims a fair crack of the whip. That's my only point. But no, I'm not desperate to go on the BBC or Sky. I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy working within the Muslim community. And yes, you're right. I mean, uh, obviously, I'm very interested in the media generally. I'm a mm. student of the media. And what's been happening over the last couple of decades is that mainstream media has been shedding its audiences. So obviously, people don't really read newspapers anymore. Mm. Um, you know, they, they, they don't really buy newspapers anymore. So wh when I was growing up, and I'm sure when you were growing up as well, uh, the, the, the broadsheets and the tabloids had a stranglehold over information. Yeah. Uh, that was the only way that you can disseminate information. Yeah. And then the, 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 the TV channels like the BBC and ITV would often pick up on their stories and, and amplify them. Uh, but now no one's reading newspapers anymore. So newspapers are shedding their, their revenue and their audiences. They're becoming far less influential. Um, and also the TV channels as well, you know, kind of terrestrial TV that we used to call it. Uh, now it's analog, of course, but those traditional news channels like the BBC and ITV, again, they are shedding audiences from 10 million watching, you know, news at 10 just 10 years ago to maybe 3 million now, something like that. So literally they're getting very scared. The mainstream media is losing its stranglehold over the national conversation and the national narrative. And that's why they have also migrated to social media because that's where it's at. And they, they do have a lot of resources to pump into uh, social media as well and in amplifying their content on social media. So, for example, all our content and your content, uh, Paul, is organic. You know, we haven't paid for any advertising. Oh, uh, whereas the BBC and others, they're spending millions on advertising, you know, to amplify their content. So yeah. they do have an unfair advantage. But, yes, you're right. Uh, social media, you know, has been a, a, a game changer. It's more of a level playing field now. And we also have international channels from, from other countries that have penetrated the consciousness of people even in the UK. But there is a fight back going on from the establishment yeah. to curtail those international news channels. They've already banned Press TV and RT. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised at some point if they ban Al Jazeera as well. Um, and also, even social media companies are, you know, especially under, especially Mark Zuckerberg and previously Jack Dorsey, they were very, very quick to try to ban alternative content. Elon Musk, that's why there's so much demonization of Elon Musk. On so the it's, it's his platform, Elon Musk, X. I hate calling it X because it's, for me, it's always going to be Twitter. It's X is meaningless. What does X mean? I don't know what that means. Um, no, but is this, is this the premier platform now for Muslims, free, reasonably-ish free speech? I know yes. there are some issues, but um, certainly compared to the other platforms, is this the go-to place for news, do you yeah. think? Yeah, so um, Elon Musk is a free speech champion. Now, obviously, that yeah. comes with some positives and negatives. It means that people like Katie Hopkins and Tommy Robinson get to yeah. come back That's and true. spat their hatred. Yeah. But I think that's the price we have to pay for, for us being able to express our minds on Twitter. Yeah, that's why I was saying that there's so much demonization of Elon Musk in the mainstream because he's annoying a lot of people by allowing people like me and you, for example, and many others um, to express themselves freely on Twitter. But I think if, you're if we're living in a secular country, Paul, like we are, uh, and that is the dominant worldview and framework, then as Muslims, the most we can expect is to have, you know, the ability to freely express ourselves. Uh, mm. So we can't really call for bans on Tommy Robinson and others, unless they cross the line to inciting violence. I think that's the that's where the line needs to be drawn. If you literally incite violence, even if you're a Muslim and you're doing that, 
then you lose the privilege of free speech. But mm-hmm. we're not doing that. Uh, you're not doing that. And Isabel and Taria aren't doing it either. You know, so these bands are just, I mean, the, the irony is that Hizbut Tahrir will probably still be able to operate on social media. But there was a previous, uh, I, I don't like the um, referencing Hizbut Tahrir in the same breath of, uh, as other prescribed or proscribed organizations, but I guess for the purposes of this, I will. You know, there are other organizations that were banned and they simply reinvented themselves by giving themselves a new label. <laughs> and it's the same personnel, the same ideology. And yeah. they were able to carry on until the government then banned that one. And you had this kind of bizarre cat, cat, cat and mouse game. So, you know, the, the, the personnel, the spokesmen and so on can continue, presumably, saying exactly what they have been. It's just they can't do it under the name of Lisbeth Tahrir anymore. Yeah, but unfortunately, it'll be worse than that. They'll probably go after their assets. And I don't know whether they, if they have an office... Um, they'll probably go off their bank accounts, and so you know it's 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 really nasty stuff, yeah, and yeah. it's it's not it's not justified, and it's 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 nasty and mean, uh, and vindictive, quite frankly. And unfortunately, Labour is supporting it, so it's going to go well, through. Yeah. Well, the, the Labour supported the government's line on opposing a ceasefire. I mean, they, they're just that's another story. But do, do you think? I mean, it, this will be challenged in the courts, presumably. Uh, yes, it's baseless. It and- in the courts, there's a there's a ninety day period where they can reverse the prescription. Uh, and if they refuse to re- reverse the prescription after uh, court challenges, then I-, I guess they can go all the way to the Supreme Court or the European Court of Human Rights. I'm, I'm not sure, but they-, they will definitely bog the government down in litigation. But the, the, uh, the ban will still be enforced, though. Well, it's not like... It will be. It will be. So basically, after Friday... Yeah. Um, so you better put this podcast out quickly, because <laughs> after, after Friday, uh, we aren't even really allowed to have a... A frank conversation about his terrier. No, I, I well, I, I'm not sure I agree. I, I thought we were weren't allowed to publicly support well, it and so on. Yeah, and, it's a minefield. It's like it's like talking about Hamas now. You know, um, you know, we can trip ourselves up or whatever. So it's it's yeah. a minefield. So I think most Muslims they they don't really want to talk about Hamas publicly because they're on the terrorist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll be the same with his terrier. We will inevitably self censor. Yeah, well, that, that's certainly uh, certainly the case on a whole range of, of things. I, I think, well, perhaps we can uh, draw it to a close now. I, I really appreciate y- your time. We've gone forever, but you, you're very busy. Was there anything finally you just want to share uh, w- with with us all in terms of your work and work of uh, your the news website, Five Pillars? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we've been very busy the last three months, incredibly busy uh, because of what's going on in Palestine. And we've got a lot more traction as well. I mean, I'd rather have no traction but Palestine be free and in peace, et cetera. But mm. the, the unfortunate reality is whenever there's a crisis, people realize they need five pillars, you know, yeah. uh, because we're probably the only completely free speaking, even Muslim outlet uh, in this country, in the English language, um, where we can, you know, literally we're not, our constitution is the Quran and Sunnah. It's not Ofcom or it's not the Labour Party or it's not, it's not um, a sect uh, of Islam, you know, whether Sunni or Shia or Barelvi or Deobandi, literally, we, we're here for all Muslims. Um, and, yeah, it's been an incredibly busy time. Of course, we're not allowed into Gaza. We would love to go to Gaza, and we right. will do as soon as we can. So we're working with local journalists to get us the information. Um, we've taken on a lot of more resources in terms of videographers. We even hired a journalist called Robert Carter, who who you'll know very well. Uh, We decided to to throw more resources at this um, because this is a historic moment. And I really don't want to be part of the generation that loses Mm -hmm. Palestine. 
I think the stakes are that high, you know, um, and I think we have to realize the stakes are that high as well. That, you know, obviously the, 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 the Nakba happened in 48, the Aksa happened, um, you know, in, um, uh, or the Aska, I think, how would, what is the Palestinian term? I forget. In, in 1967, obviously the, the second disaster happened. I don't want to be part of the generation in 2024 that loses Masjid al-Aqsa. You know, and that's that's the stakes that they will destroy Gaza. They'll move on to the West Bank. They'll deal with the the Palestinians in Israel itself, and then they will literally take Masjid al-Aqsa, uh, and then they will look to expand a greater Israel. These are the stakes. So I would literally, I don't want to be alive in that era, Paul. You know, I, I don't want to be living in that era, uh, or to tell my 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 children and future grandchildren that I was part of that era that lost Masjid al-Aqsa. So yeah. I think, obviously, we know that the UK is not the arena of jihad, uh, but we can't tire. I see Muslims getting a little bit tired after three months of activism, but we're not allowed to get tired. You know, look, just look at our brothers and sisters in Gaza and the mm -hmm. what they've lost and how they've been slaughtered and massacred Yet they still say La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. They 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 lose their their own children, but they still give thanks to Allah and they say He is the best disposer of affairs. So what's the worst that can happen to us in this country? Uh, you know, maybe we we might go to jail. Maybe we might have our possessions taken away. It's nothing compared to what the Palestinians are going through. So I think we should take our example for them. We shouldn't be scared by the dirty tactics of the authorities in this country. We shouldn't be scared into silence. And if that means we have to sacrifice some of our freedom, some of our wealth and possessions, then so be it. Because I've already taken the decision that I'm not going to be part of the generation that loses Al-Aqsa. Okay. Well, that's a uh, very, uh, very inspiring words. Thank you very much, indeed, uh, Roshan. Um, and from the uh, the news, uh, the news website, Five Pillars. You're there on Twitter. You're there on many platforms. Actually, I'll link to them in the description below. And uh, long may your uh, courageous vocation, your courageous work continue, inshallah. So thank you very much. Until next time. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands. And are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.